The Q&A is actually the most interesting time of any lecture session. Uh, first of all, because it's variation. Secondly, because it's what you're interested in. And that's what is important. And uh, Brother Andrew said, once you ask the question, I'm to repeat it for the podcast. Have we been uh, streaming live? Okay. I, I like live telecast and live radio broadcast. Well, on secular television and radio, I like them live because you can say what you meant to say, and they can cut you off afterward, but you've said it, <laughs> and that's, that's important. Okay, raise of a hand. There are no stupid questions. Sometimes there are stupid answers, <laughs> but uh, feel free to ask any question. If I do not know the answer, I will admit I do not know the answer. If there is an approximate answer, I will let you know that that's basically the concept. And if I don't know the answer, I will admit that. I won't try to uh, snow anyone with anything that is not true as far as I know. Okay, the best questions come from the kids. Okay, the question is... Uh, so I don't think Methuselah was saved. That is the inference. We're not sure. He died in the year of the flood. Whether he died in the flood, we don't know. But Noah had no response that's recorded other than his own family. So the... Okay, the, I'm repeating the question. So she asked, well, the fact that he was Noah's grandfather, wouldn't that make a difference? Wouldn't he know? Wouldn't he be saved? Being the grandfather would mean that you have closer relationship with what's going on. But that doesn't save a person. Just being in a Christian family doesn't save the children. That's the reason I said earlier, just because you're in a Baptist pastor's home doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Now, that'll give you a better chance of going to heaven because you will hear and you will see that the life is real and is lived out, a godly life. The Bible doesn't say specifically that Methuselah rejected, but... The silence is there. No one is recorded as having responded to Noah's preaching except his family. And that's a terrible tragedy. Terrible tragedy. I'm glad you asked that question. The answer? We don't know for sure that he was not saved, but the... He could have he died in the year of the flood, so he could have died before the flood happened. But again, there is no indication that anybody, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. There's no indication that anybody responded. Appreciate the question. Yes, ma'am. Approximately how long did it take Noah to load all the animals on the ark? <clears throat> there is um, 
There's a book that we carry called The Ark Feasibility Study by John Woodmorapi, a brilliant physicist and geologist. He describes <coughs> the techniques of building, caging, lighting, feeding, and he does an excellent job of that. And he indicates that in the ancient world there was the practice of menageries. Now, that was a strange word to me until I read his book. That is, you have a, you cage animals that may be candidates. And if, if that's the case, they're familiar with you. But actually the scripture says that God brought the animals to the ark. If we're talking about 7,000 kinds, less than 25,000 altogether, those could load orderly, and the fact that God brought them, he would bring the best of the specimens. Now, if they were cattle and you had to use prods on them, that's different. But they were not cattle. They were, they were orderly. God brought them. How did he bring them? We don't know, but we can, we can certainly get an idea. <clears throat> the Bible says in Psalm 46 that to initiate the flood, God uttered his voice and the earth melted. Is that scientifically feasible? Oh, yes. We learned earlier that just with controlled, intensive, specific voice, full spectral light can occur. Vibration can cause, what's the old-fashioned explosive where they had to carry it in a cradle? Help me out. The more you talk, the better the class is. Nitroglycerin. And later, TNT. You have to be careful that it, it doesn't vibrate too much. <clears throat> so, God uttered his voice, the earth melted. Geophysicists have found inside the earth layers of radioactive material separated by moderators, moderating elements. Take me a long time to answer a question because I want to really give you the answer. I live five miles from the Comanche Peak nuclear reactor. Do I sleep well when I get a chance to sleep? Sure. Am I not afraid that it'll blow? No, it's controlled. It has moderating elements. If the, uh, they, they have rods, they get heat out of it. Heat heats the water to run the turbines to generate electricity. If they raise the rods, they raise only certain rods, more of it interacts and it builds up heat, but they don't want it to build up too much heat, so they lower certain rods and that way it's moderated. Essentially the same thing as inside the globe of the earth was originally. There are layers of radioactive material sandwiched between moderating layers. Moderating layers are layers that can absorb radioactivity without interacting with other radioactive elements. So that's a controlled nuclear reactor. Originally, the Earth was a controlled nuclear reactor. But God uttered his voice, 
and the earth melted, that meant some of that began to Chernobyl. You know what Chernobyl is? Runaway nuclear reaction. So that produced the heat for the fountains of the great deep. They were broken up. Three things happened the first day of the flood. Fountains of the great deep were broken up. The windows of heaven were open. That's that canopy. It began to rain. Three things, Genesis 7. Three things happened to initiate the... God uttered His voice. That was disrupted. That generated excessive heat that built up heat and pressure for that. It's called the great Tehum in the Hebrew, that great reservoir of water, the fountains of the great deep. Those ruptured, ruptured the windows of heaven, and they rained down. So there was vibration. Animals are extremely sensitive to vibration. Uh, the great You've read about the great tsunamis, Sri Lanka and others. Before anybody knew what was going on, what did the elephants do? What, talk out loud to me. They started migrating away from the ocean to the highlands. Wow. What's going on? The elephants are running. That's all. Well, you better run with them. <laughs> so in partial answer to your question, how long did it take to load them? Animals, I'm sure God used the sensitivities that were there because he put them in. And one thing about that book, Pearls in Paradise, is as I was assimilating the articles that these two authors had written, finally, after a few months of doing that, I just had to bow my head and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for creating this little bug to do this that fits with this little thing that works over here, these conditions. It just made me want to weep, but grown men don't cry that easy. So it all fits together, the sensitivities Vibrations, you know what the butterfly effect is? It was first ridiculed. The idea that if the conditions are just right, a butterfly in China can flap its wings. If the conditions are just right, that can disturb the dust that affects, that has an electromagnetic, uh, electromagnetic effect because dust particles are charged has an electromagnetic effect on the surrounding system that can generate a vortex that can eventuate in a tornado that can affect the crops in Kansas. Now it is known that that's true, but the preconceived, the preconditions have to be right. So all of that to say, how long did it take to get the animals on the ark? God wanted them on there and elephants running here because of vibrations, vibrations carried into the wind and the electromagnetic spectra to get the right butterflies. Aren't you glad butterflies were on the ark? So how long? It certainly would take no more than two or three hours. The ark was laid out appropriately, and if the channels are there, the cages are ready. Uh, no more than a half a day at most. Do you know exactly which box they were going in? 
Well, they probably had some help. She asked, they knew exactly which box to go in. They probably had some help. I mean, the guys had to work a little bit. Noah's ancestors helped them. His, his children, yes, yes, Noah's children. <laughs> yeah, his, there, were, uh, there were eight people, and they all were responsive to the Lord. Uh, they're called just and righteous. That means they were saved. They responded in faith. Okay, good question. This takes a long time to answer. No, no, no. It's, the question was simple. I could have, I could have simply said, half a day. But I wanted to give you a basis. Did everybody understand the basis? If not, just throw something at me. Throw something that's edible at me. <laughs> okay. Yes, sir. Uh, in your chamber, your biometric chamber, uh, you put plants and life forms in there and then they Okay, I'm glad you asked that question. He said, we have a hyperbaric biosphere at the museum. He asked what we've put in it. I hold three patents on the world's first hyperbaric biosphere. What is hyperbaric? You help me out, what's hyperbaric? Greater atmospheric pressure. And... Uh, Help me determine what it should be. Today, the atmospheric pressure at sea level is 14.7. We have calculations to show what it was before the flood, which was 25% oxygen, 24 pounds per square inch. So we're going to run 24 pounds per square inch because at 22 pounds per square inch, what happens to the blood plasma? It's saturated with oxygen. Okay, so NASA's had me up twice to lecture because they want to get to Mars and back, but they can't take enough Cheerios to get there and back. So they're interested in renewable food supply, and this is one way they might be able because I didn't give you all the conditions. Notice that's pink. It's actually it's magenta. We know that for certain scientific reasons, that canopy would have glowed a gentle pinkish magenta. I invented some glasses. Cleburne Eye Clinic makes these. I don't get any royalty. I should have asked a royalty before. I invented some glasses. I called pre-flood glasses. They're magenta glasses that are UV filtered, have the right polarization. You can go to Cleburne Eye Clinic, but if you tell them you know the inventor, that's not going to help on the price. <laughs> All this in answer to your question. When you look through the right level of pink, your brain generates norepinephrine. I should have given this before lunch. <clears throat> Norepinephrine is a neurotransmitter. And one reason we get old so quick is that how many brain cells do we have? 100 billion. Between them are little synaptic connections. 
called a synapse. It's a little gap. And for us to think, the electric signal has to go arc, 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 for us to think, but it is going fast like that. That's one reason, one of the many reasons we get old so young, because we're wearing our brain out. It's going arc, 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 millions of times a second. But if you look at pink, I wear my glasses when I drive. I wore them this morning. If you look at pink, but it has to be the right level of pink. It has to be UV filtered. Don't just go buy some pink glasses. You can damage your eyes. Go to Cleburne Eye Clinic. Tell them you heard this guy speak. You want to talk to him about some of the pink glasses. Now, the frames will cost you a lot of money. That's, that's between you and them. When you look at the right level of magenta, polarized, UV filtered, your brain generates norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is a neurotransmitter. It fills these gaps so that your thought process flows. In the world before the flood, that's an additional reason they had to be taught to be violent. That calms you down and you think better. How do we know it calms you down? Take me a long time, but I'll answer your question. Anyone here of Attica prison years and years ago? What happened at Attica? They had a terrible riot. They had to take everybody out. I mean, uh, how many guards were killed? 20 or 30 people killed. It was New York. It was horrible. They took them out. They cleaned up the prison and did one thing. They painted a 40, 30 to 40 inch, about like that. Strip of magenta through the whole prison. Brought them back. No more riots. They just looked at the right level of pink and their brain worked better and calmed down. I was giving a lecture to some Boy Scouts one Sunday morning at 8 o'clock years ago at the little museum when it was a log cabin. Alvaret, you remember. And uh, so I got to the point of talking about <clears throat> the magenta canopy and light coming through it. And uh, one of the Boy Scout leaders raised his hand, so he said, so that's the reason. I said, okay, you got the floor. He said, I'm in law enforcement in Dallas, inner city where the bad guys are. And he said, we've got a cell that we painted pink. And he said, we got these guys, scraggly hair, tattoos. You can wear your hair whatever length you want, but I sure appreciate your respect that you're showing here. Uh, you can have whatever tattoos you want, but it's sure not good for your body. That's your business. But he said, he said, we got these guys, they're clawing, screaming, spitting on us, and we just 
throw them in there. And he said, last week, this guy came in, long fingernails. I mean, the dirty, smelly. I don't know where he had been. Tattoos all over him. He was cussing us. His eyes were glassy. And he said, I just took him back, opened, threw him in there, locked it. He yelled all sorts of profanities. Get me, get me out, get me out. And yelled and he said, I just closed the other door and we left him for an hour. Went back. And he said it was quiet in there. The guy was sitting over on the bench, just sitting there. I said, okay, fella, come on. He said, no way. I'm not leaving here. Why? Don't you want to come? You got to go to... He said, no, I like it here. What was the cell? Just pink. Just the right level of magenta. Ladies, you've been right all along. God's favorite color is pink. How do you know? Because there's more hydrogen than anything else in the universe. And hydrogen, when it's radiated, glows pink. Okay, let me try to finish this answer to this question, and then I'll take that one. So, in the biosphere, we're going to run experiments, not human experiments, on plants and animals. Uh, in the book, The Crystalline Canopy, there's scientific documentation to show that when plants are bathed in pink, there's at least 30% more growth and 30% more fruitage when they're bathed in the right level of magenta. Magenta is pink, the right level of pink. Wow. So it really does work. So we're, we're hopeful of getting the biosphere online before the end of the year. And you'll want to come down and see it. You won't be able to go in it, but we'll have... The increments that are in the book, some I've talked about today, all of these in place. It's going to be a great place to visit. You, you can look through the windows, acrylic windows, and see what's going on inside. Next question. So would you say or have you heard that, let's say you have an autistic child, um, a troubled child, and you take that child and you can have like a pink room or something or, uh, you know, So the question is, would that color help an autistic child or a troubled child be able to function better? Let me give you some case history. The glasses are better than, than making the whole room pink. Because he might say, this is sister, this is a girl's room. Well, these, these glasses, uh, the first thing we noticed, Robert Helfenstein was an aerospace engineer who designed the central control system for the command module of the Apollo spacecraft. He was one of our primary contributors for years. He's now home with the Lord. He came down one spring and I took him down to the state park. Had my glasses on because I just put them on automatically. And uh, we were walking across a meadow, and I said, Bob, look at that pretty little pink flower. 
He said, what flower? I don't see one. I said, this flower. And I went, and it disappeared. Put it back on, and it reappeared. In the fall of the year, it's beautiful to drive down the highway and see how the oaks and everything just pop up in color, especially in Missouri where my grandkids are <laughs> because you have the maples there. So a pink room would help, but better still would be the glasses. Um, dyslexia. Anyone have dyslexia? Okay. Okay. It has been known, I've, we don't carry the glasses, I don't make them, but early in the research, <clears throat> when I talked about them more, I rarely talk about them now because I don't want to even appear to be commercial. I don't make a cent on those, by the way. Uh, I had my glasses, Cleburne Eye Clinic made them, and they said, we'll make yours free if you'll let us sell them, which is a very good idea. Those, those are Christian people at Cleburne Eye Clinic, by the way. They're, they're born-again Christian people. Uh, so I was, I was lecturing in the little museum, had my glasses in my pocket. I finished the lecture on the creation model, and uh, a lady, I, I talked about the pre-flood canopy, and a lady had a teenage son. She said, do you think they would, uh, I mentioned that some glasses had been, had been uh, invented for that. She said, do you think that would help my son who is dyslectic? I said, how severe? She said, well, the numbers jump on the page and sometimes the letters are turned around backward. You know what I'm talking about? So I said, I don't know, but let's run an experiment. She said, we live in the Northeast. There's a dyslectic clinic in California. My son and I drove all the way there. Didn't do any good. We knew about this little museum, so we detoured from California to Texas to go back home to New England. That's a lot of effort. I'm sure glad the museum was open that day. And she said, didn't help my son at all. I said, let's run a little experiment. So I asked the son to come up. He was real reluctant, but it was just a little crowd, eight or 10 people. And I just, I opened a book. I said, would you just read a paragraph and he said, it's hard for me to read. I said, it's just us here. So he started reading, and it hurt to hear him read. I said, okay. Put my glasses on. And so he put them on, just looked around for about a minute. I talked, and, and I said, just, just a minute. He said, okay, let's try something. Open the book to a different paragraph. I said, would you just read this paragraph? And he just read it as smoothly as you could ask. He closed the book, handed it to me, and said to his mother, I've got to have these glasses. I've got to have these glasses. I said, mine aren't available, but I'll tell you. So I called Cleburne Eye Clinic. They said, okay, we'll do it just this once. He's come so far. 
they made them that day. They fitted him and made them that day for him. And he went home rejoicing. Another case, we had a writer come all the way from England. I've had a lot of interviews on the museum. And this writer was very sympathetic. So I started to dismiss the little group. And uh, he said, do you think your research could help dyslexia? I said, you're a writer and you're right. He said, yeah, I just don't tell anybody. It's just hard and I, I know what I'm writing. So he was an author. I try my glasses. Now, I don't do that anymore because we all have bacteria on our skin. And so I said, try my glasses. First read. So he said, reading's hard. Same thing happened. And this guy was maybe 35 years old. He tried to read. He said, it's hard. I know what I want to write, but I don't like to read. Okay. Try my glasses. A couple of minutes. And then he started reading. It was smooth. Put the glasses. He said, these are mine. <laughs> well, no. No, he had to go get his own. So I would suggest the glasses because you can take them off and put them on. And a fellow or a girl may get tired of a pink room. Yes. Okay. Uh, next question. Yes, sir. There's evidence that there's a hundred billion cells in our brain, and that our brain could last for a trillion years or more. Is there any evidence that the body could last that long? Okay. <laughs> no, there isn't <laughs> today, but the the brain. The body is run by the brain, and under these optimal conditions, we will have glorified bodies. We'll be like the Lord Jesus in eternity. And in the pre-flood world, even under those optimal conditions, the body would last less than a thousand years. But in the Garden of Eden, this is very important. These are all important questions. In the Garden of Eden... they were separated from the tree of life when they sinned because the body was designed to go on forever. The brain operates the body, and if the brain can go on forever, of course the brain doesn't now, it dies as well, but it is designed to go on forever. If the body could go on forever, in a state of sin, that would be hell. So God was merciful not to let Adam and Eve eat of the tree of life after they sinned. They were separated out of mercy. Can you, can you imagine a body, a person? I've seen people with cancer. I've seen, have you ever seen leprosy? Fiji had leprosy early. It's been wiped out now. I've seen lepers like that. I've seen people with cancer that had taken limbs or part of their body. How would you like to live forever like that? It would be hell. It would be horrible. So God was very merciful. So if the brain was designed to go on forever under those original created conditions. 
when Jesus promised, promised us everlasting and eternal life, John 3, 16. We'll be in a glorified state. Our bodies are designed to function. And we'll be able to travel faster than a Ferrari. When we die, we travel at the speed of concept. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's faster than the speed of light. Thank you. Next question. Yes. What do I think about the theory of Pangaea and sea floor spreading? I think it's accurate. The earth was originally one continent, one basic mass, land mass, with seas fingering into it. Uh, here's a, back to the sketch. On the surface, that's Pangaea. There's seas fingering into it, but all the land mass is together. There's evidence. Guandana land and Pangaea are concepts with all the continents fitting together, shifting slightly, refitting together. I think there's evidence for that in seafloor spreading. We know the earth expanded in diameter, so that would be seafloor spreading. Yes, yes. It's called uh, subduction. Yeah, sure. So. Uh, I hope I got across the idea that in your textbooks and in your school, it's not that the basic education with the facts are wrong, but those facts have to be lined up correctly and you have to get all the facts. That's the reason I had the whole lecture on the kids. They got it all mixed up, but they had the facts right. They just didn't line them up right. Good question. Next, and it's one o'clock. You got kids at home. Let's take three more questions. This has been fun, and we'll start again tomorrow. One, two, yes. You, sir, yes. Uh, okay, uh, I didn't. I didn't understand what you said. Oh, okay, a random fact that I find interesting. Well, now that's I've never been asked that question before. <laughs> just, just a random fact that I find interesting. Okay. I've got to filter so many. I find it interesting that God who knows, the Creator who knows everything, and we can identify. In your lesson sheets, there's a, an encapsulization of a lesson on identifying the Creator. God who knows everything and we can prove, that's an entirely different lecture. I don't know if I'll ever get invited back again, but if so, it would take the whole morning to give that lecture. We can show that every act 
of creation, during the six days of creation, were re-performed by Jesus while he was here on earth. Now, I didn't know that until about a year ago. So I'm going to be publishing a book on identifying the Creator. That the fact to me that from before the foundation of the world, he knew he was going to create the world. He knew he was going to create man. He knew Adam would sin. He knew Eve would sin. He knew we would sin. Yet he came anyway and went to Calvary and died and arose and he approaches every person and almost every one of us just say, no, 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 I'm not interested until he just keeps talking to us and he just keeps loving us. That astounds me more than all of the creation science I have ever learned. I've never been asked that question. And he's going to take us home with him. Okay, I have two more questions. This one and that one, and then we'll dismiss until tomorrow. Yes. Okay, let's see if I can rephrase the question for the sake of the, of the tape. He asked, uh, in the Creation Evidence Museum, we had for a decade a small chamber online. Now we're building a huge chamber. 62 feet long, that's like from here to that back door, 11 and a half feet wide, weighs 92,000 pounds, it's 64 feet long. Um, and it, but in that small chamber, we did the basic experiments. And we simulated the conditions that I've tried to describe to you here, simulated the pre-flood conditions. So in that, he said, the snake venom was changed. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yes. We ran experiments with agrotalus, those are rattlesnakes, and echidrodon contortrix, those are copperheads. And uh, has anyone ever been bitten by a rattlesnake? Is it poisonous? Sure it is. Why is it poisonous? The ends, have you ever seen rattlesnake venom under scanning electron microscopic analysis. It's all frayed like that. The ends are frayed and they pick up metallic materials and it's those ends uh, that cause the necrosis. That's the damage to the flesh. And the same thing happens with brown recluse spider bites, etc., etc. So we put these rattlesnakes in there 
and I had predicted to do good science, you have to make predictions as to what will be the outcome of that experiment. I had predicted that in the third generation, we should be able to see a difference in the structure of the venom under microscopic, scanning electron microscopic analysis. Uh, in the third generation, but I was wrong. Most breakthroughs in science most discoveries in science are made serendipitously. Now that's a fancy word. What does it mean? Yeah, you're right. By accident. <laughs> we don't know what we're doing. We think we know what we're doing. And sometime we reproduce it and get the same outcome. None of us really understand the whole universe, it's just awe-inspiring. So serendipity means you just, something happens by accident. You didn't plan it to be like that. Okay, so I had predicted that in the third generation we should be able to see a difference in the snake venom, but I was wrong. After just four weeks, Professor Emmy Clark came down from University of Illinois. He made 32 trips. Uh, he was one of our best supporters. He's now with the Lord. I preached his funeral years ago. Professor Clark came down and he said, why don't you milk the snakes and uh, have a test run? I said, Emmy, I don't milk snakes. <laughs> but we had Dr. Popowell, who is a specialist of that, and Robert Summers, my best buddy, uh, they wanted to milk the snakes. So I've got a picture of them milking the snakes. Now, I'm the director of the project. There are certain things I delegate, you know. <laughs> Snake milking, I delegate. So anyhow, they milk the snakes. They milk the biospheric group and the control group. <laughs> to be scientific, you've got to have a control group and experimental group. Took them both up to the lab in Dallas, left them. They called me in the lab. They said, you got to come back and see this. Okay, what's going on? They said, we ran scanning electron microscopic analysis and look. Here is the control group, just the normal snakes that were from the same batch but 40 miles away. Said, look, and it was all gnarled like that. But look at the biospheric group. The venom was totally orchestrated like that in four weeks. So what does that mean? Well, toxicology tests are very expensive, so we haven't run those, but at least the indications are that by just having them under those pre-flood conditions, we have removed the toxicity and rendered them a serum rather than a venom. And we'll prove that later. But that's in answer to your question. Yes, it makes an incredible difference just to be under those conditions. But let me add a paragraph to that. At the lab, they ran more experiments. Dr. Bowles, whose letter is in the book back here, called me and he said, you have to let us publish on this. And I said, no, it's too early to publish. They had three PhDs 
immunologists work on this. They ran the western blot electrophoresis. That's where uh, the proteins are divided into four columns. The DC currents run through them. And he said, look, he said, this devastates evolution. I said, good. What did we do? He said, from the control group compared to the biospheric group, very same kind of snake. He said, here you have increased this protein expression. That's like if you're bald, you can get more hair. He said, here you have diminished this protein expression. That's like if you have warts, you wouldn't have them. He said, here you have completely eliminated this protein expression. Wow. But he said, this is what blew us. You have expressed a protein by just having the snakes in the biosphere that is not expressed in the control group. That shows that any evolutionary change is not the result of assimilating new information. The information's already there. It's an expression of that. Did you get that? I should have included that in the original. Okay, final question. Okay, that's a profound question. Let's see if I can answer it. The question is, light traveling from the distant galaxies, we can measure the speed of light. It's 186,282.0244866 miles per second, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah that's, that's, that's the published data. So light traveling at that speed, from the redshift, we can infer that a galaxy is that distance away. So he asked, the light traveling from that distant galaxy would not have time to get here in 6,000 years. So how do we reconcile that? And the Bible says the earth is 6,000 years. Tomorrow, in the evening session, I'll be talking about Sir David Otway Ray, and he gave the ultimate answer, but that'll take 40 minutes, so I won't give that answer. So the current, the current reconciliation of the problem is this. The Bible states, using Hebrew words, that during the creation week, God stretched out the heavens like a curtain and like a tent to dwell in. The Hebrew words there are matash and natah. They have to do with the expansion of space fabric itself. Then in Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22, the Bible describes that during the flood, God stretched out the heavens again. So only God can stretch space fabric. Einstein demonstrated that space, mass, and time are all interrelated. 
if you alter space, if you could stretch space out, you would mature the mass and you would expand the time. Or if you simply expanded time, you would mature mass and expand space. Or if you simply matured mass, you would expand time and stretch space. They're all interrelated. So considering those that during the creation week, God stretched out the heavens and then he said it's finished, so he didn't continue to express, stretch them. As he expanded space-time, mass was matured, but it was not disrupted. Okay, now every word weighs a ton here. There's the second law of thermodynamics. Now we can see as mass matures, it degrades. But there's no reason it should degrade, but it does. Every experiment we can run, entropy is involved. It's running down. It's degrading. But originally, expressing things, it still functioned perfectly. Like, I think it's Zechariah who says, in the eternal ages, maybe it's Zephaniah, in the eternal ages, righteousness will dwell in the heavens. Getting all this? Meaning, righteousness will dwell in the heavens, meaning as the ages roll on and on and on and on, the heavens are not going to biodegrade. They're biodegrading now. Galaxies are eating each other. That's a result of our sin. So back to, we're the ones who disrupted it. And now it's been demonstrated scientifically that our thought process, which is errant, how many have perfect thoughts? Anybody here have perfect thoughts? If you raise your hand, you just lied. <laughs> Our thought process actually affects the mass of all the universe. That's been demonstrated scientifically, and that has tremendous implications. Okay, so during the creation week, as God expanded the heavens, they were not deteriorating. They were functioning as they were designed to. But we sinned. Wasn't it Adam? Wait a minute. It, it took Adam at least a few weeks to sin. When we reach the phase of accountability, how quickly do we sin? Just, just like that. And just like that. Just like that. Didn't we? So we're guilty. We're, we're the ones tearing it up now. Okay. So in the original creation, the expansion was there. At the time of the flood, because of the decay, God stretched it out again because in the tribulation period, some of the effects of the flood, like huge wormwood. What's wormwood? Well, it's a horrible asteroid that's going to crash into the earth. Wow. In order for time, okay, got to get all of this, just like the kids, it has to all be straight, just right. In order for the times of the Gentiles to be fulfilled, for us to be as 
be, to be demonstrated to be as wicked as we really are. Are you with me? We're, we're pretty ripe right now. Getting pretty bad. But it'll get worse, and the only answer is the Lord to come. So when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, then the rest of the tribulation will be enacted. Some of those asteroids from outer space will crash into the earth. There will be blood. The oceans will become like blood. So for that not to come in prematurely, the heavens needed to be stretched out again. Okay, we can't stretch space fabric. God can. So how far He stretched them, we don't know. All we can measure is the speed of light, and with the redshift, the signal we're getting is not where that galaxy is, but where it was when it gave off that signal. So it all has to be compressed. You'll be here tomorrow night, right? The Lord willing, I'll be telling about David Otway Ray, who saw that whole thing, one of the world's most brilliant individuals. He's now home with the Lord. He wrote part of this book, the, the latter part that I can't read. <laughs> um, but I have his original manuscripts. So, in simple answer to that, in direct answer to that, with the ability to stretch space fabric, it could be 16, 18, 20 billion years out to the edge of the universe, light years. Yet, it all occurred within 6,000 years because the Creator, twice mentioned in the Scripture, expanded those heavens. And when He did, He matured mass and dilated time. And the only record we have of that occurring that fits the scientific data, if we line it up right, like those kids, they were a major contribution today that wasn't just incidental. When it fits right, the only scientific document that gives us the details is the Bible.